0: Hired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host,
1: David Barr Kirtley. Hello,
2: and welcome to episode 102 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Later in today's show, guest geeks PW Singer and Mike Cole will be joining me to discuss hackers. But first up, we've got an interview with author Scott Sigler. He was the first author to start podcasting novels and built up a huge online following, which led to a five-book deal with Crown Random House. Two of his books are currently in development as TV shows, and his new novel Pandemic, the third book in the Infected Trilogy, is out now. So, Scott, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: All right, and so your new book is called Pandemic, and it's out now. You want to just tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, Pandemic is the final book in the Infected Trilogy, and... This is the classic invasion tale, but told in three parts across the trilogy. Part one, which is infected, we zoom in on one faceless individual who would just be a statistic in most invasion movies, as in now there's 17,000 dead, now there's 18,000 dead. Who are those people, and how do they react when this thing breaks and no one has any idea what's happening, and there's no information at all? Then in the second book, Contagious, the camera pulls back to see the national response to this. What is the president doing? What is the army doing, the CDC, etc. And how does a nation respond to an unthinkable horror that is spreading from citizen to citizen? And this isn't a disease. This is actually people being turned into killers or people being turned into other things entirely. It's quite horrific and, and quite violent in the second book. And then in the third book, After the end of Contagious, the second book, they think they've got this thing bottled up. But as happens in fiction, it sneaks out. And in the third book, we pull the camera all the way back and let you see the entire world succumbing to this infection and the growing cataclysm as the numbers start to shift. The number of people infected is getting close to uh, overwhelming the number of people who aren't infected. So Pandemic is a global apocalypse story and watching the survivors try and find a way to win watching governments hold on by the skin of their teeth and watching humanity try and avoid utter extinction
2: mm-hmm. yeah and i saw you you said on reddit the quote by the time i was finally done with nocturnal i wanted to take it out into a field and pee on it i was pretty close to the same place <laughs> with pandemic uh so what what made a book what makes a book like pandemic such a challenge to write
0: Well, it's the third book in a series, and uh, I I don't have any um, retcons in my books. And if something goes onto a page, that is permanent within the storyline. So there are no characters coming back from the dead. There are no magical resurrections. You know, there's no, uh, a lot of the things that can happen in in certain types of stories, certain genres, you can't do in a a modern-day, realistic, hard science setting. So incorporating all of the plot elements that I put into book one and book two and making them consistent through book three, that proved to be a challenge. And the other part of the challenge was I write, uh, all of my stories are in the same continuum. They're all in what I call the Siglerverse. So there's modern day horror thrillers. Then 500 years from now, there's some military science fiction. And then beyond that, 700 years from now, there is a young adult series called the Galactic Football League. And that's an American pro football league with aliens playing different positions based on their physiology. It's cool and fun, but the point of that is I want to be able to bring the world to the brink of destruction. But to actually throw it into a world that looks like the stand or the road or the passage where civilization is utterly collapsed is kind of unrecoverable. In the timeline, unless I want to write stories along those lines, you know, those uh, post-apocalyptic stories. So figuring out a way to actually destroy the world but allow the world uh, and civilization to rise like a phoenix from those ashes, setting that up in a certain construct, that proved to be really, really challenging. And the final part of what made it frustrating for me is I kind of grew up on a steady diet of Stephen King and Dean Koontz and small-town horror where it's really easy to provide isolation. Here's our 10 to 15 characters. Here's why they're isolated and can't just call for help. And you watch a story develop from there. And with Pandemic, you're really looking at global politics, you know, relationships between nations, and a lot of political complexities in which I am not an expert by any stretch of the imagination.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and this, the, the scenes in the Situation Room felt very plausible to me. All the military stuff felt incredibly believable to me. And I saw on your blog that you had at least five different military consultants. Uh, could you talk about how they helped you out?
0: Yeah, I've got I've got a, three different, uh, I'd say, groups of consultants. I've got my biology consultants, which I'm really lucky to have two biology PhDs and a research MD who go over everything and tear it up. And I've also got... A couple of political consultants like there's a gentleman who's high up in fema and he helped a ton with this giving me the way we would actually react and some of that information was sobering and shocking at looking at what america's prepared to do if the the crap hits the fan so to speak um and then there's uh, the military group and the military group is uh you know a major at mount home air force base and and then a colonel a full colonel who's done a lot of different things and served in a lot of different areas in the air force, a gentleman who served a couple of tours in Iraq and now teaches SWAT teams, teaches close combat to SWAT teams. And these guys and women to, to go through the book and the amount of corrections they will make on what we, we think is normal in popular culture. I've watched enough soldier movies. I've watched the Delta force movies. I know how this stuff works. And those movies are wonderful and fun, and, and but when you give them to real soldiers and real airmen, uh, you find out a lot of that information is completely false. And you just never knew.
2: Mm. I mean, could you give an example of something that, you know, you you wouldn't know? I mean, that a, a sort of intelligent person who follows the news and follows the military casually would, would need an expert to tell you to get right?
0: Well, there are a couple things. I won't get too much into it for plot purposes, but um, the, the the Air Force uh, colonel was very helpful in situation room incidents. And what is the order of, not only the order of succession of the presidency, which is easy to look up, but when that starts to fall apart and people are in different places and cut off from communication, uh, who has to make the important decisions that have to be made on the spot? Do we... Attack this city, yes or no, and every second you wait, more people are becoming infected and the situation is spiraling towards a level where even if you do attack it, it's already too late, you know, and that those critical real-time mission decisions, if the president or the vice president or the secretary of state isn't available, who has to make that call? And I would have had no idea how that works. And then um the other thing that was very helpful was what equipment is actually on what Air Force bases, how many troops do we have, who do we have available to respond? If there is a crisis in, say, Oakland, uh, what troops are available to go in and, and pacify that situation? And the one that really wound up being important was how long does it take them to do that? What is the response time? Now, that's the thing that in popular culture, we tend to see Oh, that's the rapid response force, and let's load up this c five and we'll have troops on the ground in twelve hours and there's a certain number of troops that are are combat ready to go at any given time. But in the states, a large number of troops being ready to deploy to another area in the states is way more complicated than you think there's a limited number of troops available, a limited number of equipment available. So responding to things within twenty four to seventy two hours, I learned through these consultants adds a really complex level to a story which is based on the rapid expansion of an infectious vector. So every hour that you don't have troops on the ground is another hour that the people who are infected is increasing exponentially. So that timing was a huge part of pandemic.
2: Yeah. And I mean, speaking of the exponential growth of the infected, I mean, throughout this entire book, you give specific numbers or specific estimates anyway of how many people are infected. Uh, where did those numbers come from? Did you have some sort of uh, formula you, you were using or model or?
0: There was some, uh, some information uh, out there from the CDC and some infectious rates. And then the biology guys and the doctor, the medical guy, they're all doctors, but those three were critical in trying to come up with a realistic rate of infection. And my initial vehicle for uh, the vector had a rapid expansion, and then all three of them came back and say, yeah, this scientifically, this does not work. So then I would have to come back, and being a, a biology fan or nut, but just a layman, come back and research, and what if we did this, what if we did this, because I had a really It's a really detailed, delicate plot, and I needed things to expand at a certain pace to give you that thriller feel, that race against the clock feel. It was a matter of working with the biology consultants to say, what in the real world that we have right now would help me achieve this particular level of expansion?
2: Mm -hmm. And these consultants you've mentioned, are these, I gather, they're mostly sort of just fans of yours who offered their services to you, or how did you find them all to begin with?
0: They're absolutely fans. I started out my career before I had a book deal with anybody I'd been trying for about ten years to get a book deal and just you know over a hundred rejection letters from agents and publishers and The problem with my fiction was it's cross genre, and they were afraid of that back then. They didn't know whether it was military, a thriller, whether it was horror, whether it was science fiction, and if it was science fiction, it's happening today, so that doesn't work and If it's horror, could you write some vampires in? No, I can't write vampires in so there was um basically people liked the writing, but they just didn't know how to sell it, and it was more of a risk. So in order to try and prove that, I started to record my own audiobooks and release them as unabridged serialized podcasts. And I started to build up a great online audience of people who listen to the podcast every week, and emails start to filter in from people who really know their stuff. And I've filed all those away, and I've got uh sort of my rolodex in my address book and i i'll just put in keywords for everybody and okay now i need a nuclear physicist then i'll search and two or three names will pop up and i'll start emailing people and asking questions
2: hmm. wow and i mean you mentioned that you you podcast you started out by podcasting your novels and obviously since i do a podcast i pay attention a lot of attention to the uh, itunes rankings for the literature category and your books are always near the top of those lists And I guess I'm just wondering what I mean, obviously, you want to write good books and make them freely available. But are there is there anything else that podcasters can do, you think, to um, uh, get to rise up the ranks in iTunes?
0: Well, as far as uh, the only thing I speak on there that I really know about is podcasting books. And the big issue with podcasting books is you need enough content to be able to podcast consistently every week. The single biggest factor I think in success is podcasting is um, consistency. If you podcast every month, it's got to be every month. If you podcast every week, it's got to be every week. Uh, Every other week I've found doesn't work because in our Western culture, we're trained that it's, you know, January 1st, that magazine comes out or Tuesday, that show is on. We're, we're trained weekly and we're trained monthly. And that's the biggest thing. So people, If they're recording their own audiobooks, they need to be ready to have two or three books ready to go before they start, so that they can be podcasting consistently for two or three or four years before they expect to see any kind of real audience growth or any kind of development. And of course, there are exceptions to that, like Welcome to Night Vale, which kind of comes out of nowhere and does something different, or uh, We're Alive, the zombie uh, full cast production. But even even with We're Live, they're going on three or four years now, and it's there very consistent when they put out a season. So that's the biggest thing. And I also did, I started podcasting my books because there was no way to get content out to a subscription-based audience or kind of a a captive audience. The only person who was doing anything back then that was similar was Cory Doctorow giving away PDFs of all of his books. And Showing sales stats. Like when people are telling me, don't, oh my God, don't give away your audiobook. Are you crazy? You'll lose your audio rights and no one will buy your book because they got it for free. And there was Corey saying, I give away all my books as free PDFs and my books are in third, fourth, fifth printing. They keep selling and he thought it was the PDFs that helped make that happen. So I hijacked that model but with audio. That was before the ebook revolution. So when I started out with Earthcore and Ancestor, uh, there was no way. To get your content out to the world and and have an audience that was re- ready for it. Now there's the Amazon and the ebook store, the Kindle store, and a lot of authors, you know, like J. A. Conrath, for example, or Hugh Howey are. That's what they're specifically using the Amazon market for. Is like here's all these people ready for ebooks. I'm gonna put out a well written, well edited, well formatted ebook, and boom, I've got a global audience of whatever Amazon's user base is, which is you know, 100 million people ready to read books. So it's a great way for aspiring authors to have that same captive audience and go after people who are waiting for content and have that free global distribution without being in a recording booth for four or five hours a week and editing and having the RSS feed and maintaining all of those other things.
2: I actually saw you say on Reddit that you said that the podcast novel scene is largely dead now. Um, what are you, what do you attribute that to? Is that just the growing professionalization of podcasts? or
0: It's it's that there's less low-hanging fruit, to use a cheesy business term. You know, when, when I got into this, there were three guys who started out right about the same time not knowing each other, and that was myself. That was T. Morris, who wrote a book called Moravi, and a gentleman named Mark Jeffrey, who wrote a book called The Pocket Independent. So all of a sudden, there's three full-length serialized novels out there that were free, and the audience went kind of crazy for him. And because there was nothing out there and you didn't have ABC, NBC, CBS and Fox and NPR and ESPN flooding the, the podcast marketplace, uh, you were able to get a podcast novel into the overall top 100, not just the literature, but the overall top 100 and have sudden exposure to all these people who were discovering podcasting. And we were in it before iTunes had anything, before they had any podcasting support at all. And then iTunes podcasting comes in and you've got that top 100 chart and that like new podcast, new and noteworthy. And you're able to pick up a ton of listeners kind of out of nowhere. Well, that's gone now largely because you've got professional media flooding the podcast market. And like Rachel, you know, how do you compete against Rachel Maddow who's got this whole professional editing operation behind her? and Or Joe Rogan, you know, who's uh, got 20, 30 years of experience in entertainment. Or Chris Hardwick, et cetera. There are all these really talented people who understand the medium and are using it to get their content out and entertain people. And then, you know, here's me, some schlub who's like, how does a microphone work? Hmm. It's a, it's really difficult to overcome that. So that's a lot harder. And then the second part is most of the people who got into podcast, making podcast novels are done. They podcast all their books and they're out of content and out of that whole beginning crew there's only a handful that are still, you know, still slugging it away every week. And I I think I'm pretty much the only one who's every week we're going to have an audiobook episode for you regardless. And then there are other great podcasters like Mer Lafferty who have, like gives away her book and then also has her weekly show on I should be writing and talk about the writing craft. So they're able to stay in front of their audience on a weekly basis. But strict Serialized audiobooks is really hard to do because of the work that has to go into making the book, and that's a lot of time, having enough content to be able to do it on a weekly basis, and overcoming the hurdle of uh, a a flooded marketplace. So I've got some advantages because I started out way back when. I already have an audience that's expanding on its own weight, and since I'm able to write full-time now, I've got content backed up. I'm ready to go for the next three years, so (laughs) that, that helps.
2: Wow. And speaking of your uh, your equipment and using a microphone and stuff, you have this video online of it's got sort of this MTV Cribs style thing where you show people around your apartment, and you have what seems to me pretty amazing uh, equipment in your house. You have this little recording closet and this uh, this uh, backdrop for filming stuff. Uh, how did you like? Where did all that equipment come from? How did you decide what to get and so on?
0: Well, I started out. It's it's kind of a it's a gradual process because I started out with uh, a cheesy microphone and an old Flower Power iMac in my closet in my apartment because that was the only place that I had sound baffling because the apartment's right above Franklin Street in San Francisco, which is three lanes one way and is going 24-7 and is full of noises. Um, so I started out just trying to find any way I could to make it sound, sound semi-professional because it's, you know, you got to have a good signal that people are going to listen to you every week. And that was uh, nine years ago now. So I've gradually built up equipment as I have gone. And the two big things were when I uh, signed with Random House, my five book deal with Random House, all that advance money went right in the bank, except for, all right, I'm going to go out and buy a Mac Pro, and I'm going to buy an RE47 mic, and I'm going to buy, you know, a, a, a tube preamp, and I bought all of this gear to give me that really professional sound and then came across that booth and it's a four by four sound isolation booth which are pretty standard for people in the recording industry but they're also very expensive i happened to get that for free which was awesome from a company called pixel core in san francisco who like i went there to record some stuff with them and they had it sitting out sort of in a hallway because they were building a really nice detailed studio And they said, yeah, we don't know what to do with this. We're going to give it away. I'm like, I'll be here tomorrow with a truck and (laughs) snagged it and then jammed this giant four by four recruiting recording booth into the closet in my house, had to rip down shelves, just completely lose my deposit, security deposit there. Um, And so that was the next level. Then at some point it just became logical that I needed to go get an office because I had Now we had physical books and we had the recording booth. We had the recording gear and we needed to expand into video. So we went and got an office a few blocks from the house and that is where we are now. And it's it's a really tiny office, but it's divided up into four even tinier rooms. But there's one room for the recording booth and the computer. There's a room to shoot video and that has worked out pretty well. So it's been a gradual accumulation of good gear and constantly trying to make things sound better and look better for the audience. Mm
2: So why did you decide to start getting into the video?
0: Well, you look at people who are doing extremely well on YouTube, like Toby Turner or Sexy Phil and you know dozens of others. It's, it's a massive, massive market, and there's hundreds of people who are now making their living putting out regular videos. And then the other thing is just the sheer number of users on YouTube and the younger demographic is really into short-form video and watches an enormous amount of it. So, you know, a high school junior, high school sophomore might not be into reading books at this particular time, but they're watching three, four, and five minute videos on YouTube by the dozens. So that's a way to go out there and try, just like I did with podcasting, I'm going to try and get into video, get some viewership, get people to start sharing the videos and build up that brand name as an author. And it's worked out pretty well that uh I've got you know, a good number of subscribers on my channel and we have over half a million views on the channel. So it's worked and we've got the videos out there. But we had to scale back. We did a show called Monstrosity, which was about science fiction, horror and fantasy, pop culture. Had to dial back on that to finish a bunch of book deadlines because that's the day job. And maybe we'll get into it in the future. But the biggest benefit YouTube has given us is book trailers. We do a full professional book trailer to the max budget we can afford for every book that comes out and those things just sit there and they clock hundreds of views a day and it just keeps adding up and there's the the biggest one for us is infected the first trailer I put out and that has over 250,000 views and continues to get uh you know 20 30 40 50 views a day on YouTube people stumble across that people watch it. A lot of people go, eh, whatever. But out of that 20 or 30 or 40, probably one or two people a day go, that looks awesome. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm looking for. They will go out and get free podcast or they will buy the book. And then I've got a chance to get a new reader for life.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Why don't you tell us about the pandemic trailer? I don't know how much, how much spoilers you want to go into, but could you just tell us, you know, yeah, just how did that come about and just what is, how did you decide what content to put in and stuff like that?
0: Well, we used – I'll start that story by saying we, we did a, a user-generated video contest for the book, my novel Ancestor. And that was won by a director named Alex uh, – uh, excuse me, Adrian Picardi. And he started a company called Aureus Grex, which does all kinds of different video projects. And it was a scene from Ancestor. So we had four scripts, which were four word-for-word scenes from the book, opened it up to the public and said – you know, here are some video assets. Go shoot your vision of this scene. Take the script and go shoot it. And he he killed it. And people can see his user-generated trailer at scottsigler.com slash ancestor. We have both the book trailer and the little movie that he shot there. So when it came time to shoot the trailer for Pandemic, I gave Alex a call, learned he had started his own company, and they were looking for projects, and they had already done some uh, amazing stuff. <laughs> They've done some work for the video game industry and people should look out. It's A-U-R-E-S-G-R-E-X.com. And they were excited because they liked the books and they wanted to do something with me. So we said, all right, let's make a trailer. Picked a scene from Pandemic. And uh, we don't have the budget to shoot crazy full-on special effects like you will find in the whole, sec- the whole second half of Pandemic. It's, it's a $250 million movie hmm. if it's a penny to shoot. We don't have those kind of resources. So we picked one scene from the book that was shootable and they went out and they cast a great actor in it and they wound up using the same warehouse that was used in Inception. So the warehouse scene in Inception is where my trailer shot, which is kind of awesome. And then they just shot that scene from the book and I gave him the script and I I said, here are the things that I'm looking for. I need something really startling to catch the viewer's attention Because going back to the YouTube channel, I'm able to look at stats and see, yeah, most people drop off in the first 10 to 15 seconds of a video unless there's something really compelling right out of the gate. So for the pandemic video, we've got a guy smashing in a person's skull with a two by four in the first two seconds of the trailer. And most people are like, this is going to be interesting. And then they'll watch the whole trailer and get to see that it's actually about a book. So we shot at that warehouse, turned it over to Alex and let him and his crew do the magic that they do. And... I would love to make a trailer that's even more over the top with more special effects, but uh, they totally maximized the limited budget that we had and did a really good job. I got to be in the trailer as a dead body with a triangle growth on my neck, which is kind of cool and the fans really dig that. Overall, it's worked out well. It just went over like 7,000 views and will continue you know, for the next 5 to 10 years. It's just going to sit there and continue to get views and hopefully sell books.
2: Well, it's funny because you posted this video on YouTube, right? This this trailer, and it's a scene in the book where somebody posts a video on YouTube. Um, yeah, that, that, did, that's true. Did you, yeah. when you wrote that scene, did you have any uh, inkling that you might make that into a actual an actual video?
0: No, it didn't occur to me till after. But then flipping through the book to try and find something they could shoot on the budget that we had, and I came across that. Um, that's one of those trying to blur the lines of reality things that I try and do with the book and with the marketing for the book. So once I figured that out, like somebody's going to be reading this in the book then and see that the characters in the book are watching a YouTube video of a character talking, trying to get some help. And then if they scan, you know, Pandemic YouTube or Sigler YouTube trailer, they're going to be able to find that actual scene from the book. It's got a real meta feel to it. There's also a pair of twitter accounts in the book of two characters uh, tweeting information back and forth and when people look up those twitter accounts you know they'll see these twitter accounts have been active for over a year and there's a ton of information there and then you get to the point where the tweets you read in the book are actually sitting out there under that account on twitter and there's just that moment of whoa that's that's kind of awesome mm.
2: Well, yeah, and speaking of Twitter, there's sort of a a chapter in the book which is nothing but tweets of people reacting to the pandemic. And Uh um, I thought it was really well handled the way that the sort of anti-vaccination movement, um, you know, that the people's uh, mistrust of the government and big pharma and stuff, uh, you you take that into account uh, in in, um, describing how this scenario would unfold. Uh, Could you just talk about sort of your thought process behind that? Well, the
0: the thought process is I've got I'm very fortunate in my career in that I I don't wear my politics on my sleeve in the books or online or on Facebook anywhere like that. And and a lot of authors do, and that that's great. But me not doing that has developed this strange culture where I have people from the far left and the far right, atheists, hardcore Christians, hardcore Muslims that people read my stuff, and everybody sort of thinks I think like them. You know, so I'll get a lot of information back to me about, huh, look at these idiots. They're not like us, and I'm like, yeah, I'm nothing, I'm nothing like that. Um, what has surprised me is as it, it, all of my stuff is extremely hard science-based. I do take some liberties for the purpose of writing a great story, but 99% of what you read in the, the books is absolutely real. Those things exist. They're out there. If you want to look hard enough, you can find them. To create that sense that this is something that could happen to you and me and, and all the people around us. And I've been shocked at how many anti-vaxxers I have as fans, because I, I'm very much against that movement and very much believe that this is a, you know, vaccination and science is a, what gives us our culture and keeps most of us alive. But to see that these are people I interact with on a daily basis and like, and then I post something uh, vaccination related and to see their reaction, it made me stop and think as a creator, be like, wait a minute. This is just like the religion thing. This is just like the Republican-Democrat thing. There are people who are smart and who I talk to on a daily basis who are totally against this particular branch of science. And it was a sort of a wake-up call to me that I could write characters that have that anti-vax mentality and not make them caricatures and not make them dummies and not make them excessively violent and not portray them to be some kind of monster and work that into the book it became something where I really wanted to show uh, the potential damage of of what this anti-big pharma, anti-government, this conspiracy theory mentality is, and we're seeing it in real life now with you know kids dying of smallpox and measles, and you know the flu killing people, and these are dangerous real world things. Okay, extrapolate that out to this crazy fictional, incredibly contagious vector. And then the government says, we have saved the day. We did the scientific work. We've got this formula that you can drink and it will protect you against this thing that will turn you into a monster and make you kill your family. And the number of people in America and in Europe who would be like, oh, no, that's a trick. You guys are trying to trick us. You're trying to addict us to this big pharma thing. You're trying to make us mind slaves. You know, this is just another version of chemtrails. Any number of conspiracy theories you can come up with. What's different a little bit in pandemic is it's the people who are not going to take it that create enough of a population base to become infected and then therefore go out and either be a violent monster or spread the disease faster than it would have spread before. So the anti-vax movement within pandemic becomes a major part of the plot.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, in college I studied constitutional law, and so I'm always interested in that sort of stuff. And uh, I had never heard of this case you mentioned, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, which uh, established the government has the power to compel uh, vaccinations. Uh, I was just wondering, how did you come across that, or uh, did one of the experts tell you about that? Or,
0: Yep, yeah, that was uh, that was the guy from FEMA. Um, you know, I was like, what what, do we, what does the government do if you've got? We can save fifty million lives if we force. You know, five million people to take this vaccine, for example, uh, and and that case came out and uh, learning enough about it to put it in the book. It's logical and common sense if you look at large successful governments as their own biological entity and hardwired into our laws and our codes. Are you know America's going to survive no matter what we have to do? That seems to go against what America's all about. And there's that larger gestalt concept of uh, of a communal organism that kicks in and that law that you just mentioned is part of it. And it was it was a little surprising to find out that that exists because of our culture of independence in this country, but it's there and if something really bad is happening, the government's going to find a way to bring you back in line and protect the larger population.
2: Mhm. See, I listened to the year-end review podcast that you recorded with your business partner, A Kovacs, and uh-huh. you know I listened to a lot of author interviews, and it's very rare for to hear somebody say, "Oh yeah, we just really screwed up this year." Um, so it was really it was really striking to me when you guys mentioned uh, you know that you had sort of a, a big uh, misjudgment uh, this past year uh, in terms of publishing your your uh, the YA Galactic Football League series. You mentioned, uh, could you just talk about uh, sort of how that happened?
0: Sure, um, we. You know, our our whole business, ACOVEX and I run a company called uh, Empty Set Entertainment, and it's just the two of us. But we are able to hire a significant number of freelancers and like book editors and book designers and artists and and people to do our website and things. So it's it's been a great experience to build that business. But we built it on the concept that uh, you know there is no impossible. We're swinging for the fences all of the time, and using my career arc as a model from going. From someone who has 120 rejection letters setting in a file to, uh, you know, ignoring everybody's advice that I knew in the publishing world. of Do not give your stuff away for free. That's crazy. And saying, no, we're going to do this because this is logical and I understand how the Internet works and this just makes sense. And then plowing forward to do that. And then the next step was putting out The Rookie, which is book one of the Galactic Football League series. As a before Kickstarter existed, we did a Kickstarter. We had enough of an audience on our podcast. We said, Hey, we're going to put out this really expensive, tricked out $35 hardcover with embossed cover and 16 color plates inside of this podcast that all of you have already listened to. Will you pay us money now and we'll give you the book in eight months? We're like Popeyes Wimpy of the publishing world. And, you know, 2000 people said, Yep, here's our money. And we're like, This is awesome. We've got enough money to put out this book and make a really, really high quality product. And we're already profitable before we even do one thing, which is unheard of in the publishing industry. And that's the Kickstarter model. And it, it worked out great for us. And people told us that wouldn't work. Everybody's like, that's ridiculous. You won't get enough money. You're going to have to compromise the product. And what if you have to give the money back, etc." And A and I largely just said, well, if we screw it up, we'll figure out how to fix it somewhere down the road. But we were successful in that, and we've been – that attitude has largely been successful for eight years. And then we decided to get our own distribution and put out all four of the Galactic Football League books in every Barnes & Noble and paperback and get them into Amazon and become more of a book publisher. And we had to partner with a publisher in order to get the distribution, and the people at the distribution company – loved it. They were like, this is like young adult based on football and it's science fiction. There's nothing like this for young athletes in the young adult market. So boys and girls who are really into sports kind of don't have anything to read. And we're going to give them this awesome seven book series. Publisher went nuts and the publisher said, well, you should print 10,000 copies of each of the first two titles. That's a lot of books for a small company like us. We were going to print 3000 cuz that's a number we know we're going to be able to sell through one way or another within a year or two. And the mistake we made was this time we actually listened to the experts in the publishing industry instead of saying, "Yeah, we're we're going to follow our instincts," which has worked great so far. We wound up printing, you know, three times the number of books that we were planning on printing. And our instincts wound up being correct and we have not sold that many and there's a lot of breakdowns in that process. We were supposed to be front-of-store display, and it's called co-op marketing, and all the Barnes & Nobles were supposed to have displays of the book out. That never happened. And a couple other things didn't happen, and people didn't have the books in time. And all of that was completely out of our control. The end result was the series just flat-out didn't catch fire the way everybody thought it would, and we've got a lot of copies left over. So... Uh, our, Our mistake was twofold. Number one, we should have listened to our conservative nature and kind of like, well, we know our audience and we'll start out with this many. And if it blows up, then we'll print more. That was number one. And number two was, you know, listening to somebody else's opinion and how they thought our content would go, which has never really turned out to be right in the past eight or nine years. And this was another example of that. But and we were excited. You know, they were saying like this is gonna be like a little miniature sports version of Harry Potter, it's gonna go crazy. You gotta have thousands of copies ready when this thing takes off. You know, and our chests swell up, we're like, Well, that's wonderful. Of course we would like to sell lots of books and be household names. So we kind of you know, our own hubris sucked us into that and yeah, we made a mistake and we've learned from that mistake. And next time we next time we do this we'll be much more conservative. Uh the, the paperback printings of book three, four and five will be three thousand copies. And we know we'll sell through that. We know we'll make a profit and we know we'll entertain people. So, you know, live and learn. And fortunately, the other areas of the business are doing well enough that that didn't put us under. And we're still moving forward.
2: Mm-hmm. I guess uh, speaking of household names, you've, you've written very favorably about your admiration for authors like Stephen King and Michael Crichton. And, you know, I've, I've been involved in the science fiction world for a long time. And I've noticed that a lot of sort of hardcore science fiction authors and readers seem to kind of look down on Michael Crichton. And I was just wondering if you've uh, experienced that at all. And what you, as a big fan of his, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I've experienced that. And it's very puzzling to me. And part of it is because he takes big liberties with the science, you know, like the science of Jurassic Park. Um, But Michael Crichton was a thriller writer. He is writing a story. And he's writing a story that he envisions will become something, translate well onto the big screen. So, these are relatively formulaic stories with formulaic characters, and they are kind of traditional thriller plots. And then, what he did different was work, take a scientific concept and go crazy with it and make the story based on that scientific concept. And I've just never really understood it. You know, you, you can take a story like uh, John Scalzi's Old Man's War, for example, which is an awesome book. But because it's in the far future, there's this uh, magical gray area of between now and 300 years from now, we're going to have the technology to be able to do these things. So, you know, uh Scalzi's the transmorgification, if you will, of the, the main character from what he is into what he becomes, so I don't give any spoilers. There's huge liberties taken with the science. Huge. And the readers don't seem to have any problem with that because that's in the future and we'll figure that out between now and then. You know what I mean? But because Crichton writes modern day and also takes huge liberties with the science, there seems to be some kind of pushback against that. Mm.
2: Well, I mean, it seems also to me that a lot of science fiction fans and scientists have a very positive view towards science, and that when you write book after book that are sort of horror, that combine horror and science, it just conveys this impression that science is sort of something that only ever leads to bad outcomes. Um, is that something you worry about, writing um, science and horror together, and how do you handle that?
0: It has not become a big deal for me because um, I I can't speak to other science horror writers, but I spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to make the science as realistic as possible. Uh, the science consultants, like these guys read three full drafts of the book to make sure everything is as right as it can be. And I think that people pick up on that too. So uh, the men and women who make their living in science, who make their living making our world a better place, can see that respect on the page and it it gets me that street cred and I don't get that much pushback. The other thing that I do that I, I think helps me out is I do not have the stereotypical, cliche, mad scientist in my book. These are all characters who are, you know, I try to make them complex characters with their own wants, needs, and motivations and relationships and how they approach their science, why they approach their science, trying to make them as realistic as possible. You know, I don't have the female assistant damsel in distress. I've got, you know, the, the lead character in the Infected series, Infected, Contagious, and Pandemic is Dr. Margaret Montoya who goes from being a second-tier CDC scientist, for example, to being thrown into the forefront of this because she gets the disease like nobody else gets, and then you watch her life get torn to pieces because she is sacrificing her life in order to try and make the world a better place, to try and save humanity, whatever it takes for the greater good she's willing to do. And I think that scientists empathize with that because I have a couple of high school buddies who are PhDs, one in chemistry. and the amount of things that they've given up in their lives to pursue science when this same brilliant dude could have gone into business and made 10 times as much um you know that is a constant raw emotion with scientists where it's hard like i'm trying to do these things to do good and my life is uh, there's a lot of sacrifices i have to make constant grant proposals moving from school to school the demands of academia etc so to show characters going through that same kind of struggle That helps a lot, too. And finally, when I do have the mad scientist, the motivations are there for good. An ancestor is the best example. In Ancestor, we have a gentleman named Dr. Klaus Rumkorff, who's brilliant in his own right, but is largely collecting a team of people smarter than him and then sort of cajoling them, coercing them, bullying them into creating this artificial organ donor animal, so a herd animal that has human-compatible organs. And his goal is a to get stink butt stink and rich, but more than that, it's if he pulls this off, he's going to save hundreds of thousands of human lives every year, add you know decades onto the average human lifespan. So, although his methods of achieving his goal are nefarious and wind up causing a lot of science gone wrong damage, his intentions are pure, and he's genuinely a good guy who's trying to save lives and improve the quality of life. So I really haven't had any pushback from the scientific community, and I think those are the reasons why. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so the uh, the sci-fi movies that have influenced you the most, you list as Aliens, American Werewolf in London, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Thing, and They Live. And you say of Aliens that I've watched this movie over a hundred times now, and every new viewing brings a new lesson on overlapping tension arcs. Uh, could you talk about what you mean by overlapping tension arcs?
0: Well, what cameron does james cameron the director uh, does in his movies is you've got problem a and problem a has a beginning uh, rises up to a middle then there's a solution a resolution and then it drops back down to zero so one to two to back down to zero for example what he does that is why i constantly watch that movie over and over again is as you're on the upwards arc for problem a And then as it starts to come down just a little bit, like, oh, I see the solution. Now we have to go out and execute that solution. Problem B is on its rising problem arc. So by the time A finishes, you're already halfway in the rise to problem B. And then problem C has already begun. And it's this subtle technique of he never allows the tension to fully return down, turn back to zero. So instead of, to make it really simple, four characters have to go out and get this resource face the monsters as they do, and then come back to their fully protected bunker, and everybody's safe, three of those characters will go out, one will stay behind, and as the three come back with the resource and get to the bunker and will be safe and can take a breath, something has come and grabbed character number four, and now the problem—now they've got a new set of tension where they have to go rescue character number four. And that's an oversimplification of what you see in the movie, but it's this constant, these overlapping arcs, so that you do get that experience of high tension and then you start to recover, but you never get to come back down to zero. And you're, when I watch that movie, you're on the edge of your seat for 90 straight minutes. And it's, it's a, a textbook in how to keep people turning the page. Hmm.
2: Um, all right, so uh, our producer, John Joseph Adams, I'm sure, would want me to mention that you have a story called Complex God coming up in his Robot Uprisings anthology. Could you tell us about that story?
0: Yeah, that that was really uh, fun to work with uh, John and Daniel H. Wilson on that, um, in the Complex God story. And I was able to tie that into the Siglerverse. So in the Galactic Football League series, there is a race called the Prowat, and they are kind of the boogeymen of the far future 700 years from now. They're misunderstood, you can't communicate with them, they kind of just show up and destroy things. But because the Siglerverse is a continuum from modern day to there, I wanted to be able to show how that all began. And it began with a scientist named Petra Prawat. So Complex God looks at her research and her efforts into bioremediation, which is trying to use fungus or bacteria or any kind of biological uh, entity to get rid of pollution. So why would we send... Humans into to clean up a nuclear bomb site or a nuclear waste site if we could send in bacteria or we could send in insects that would get the same job done with no damage to human life. And she does this with a combination of nanotechnology and, and bacteria and those two things creating a symbiotic relationship like an ant colony so that the nanotechnology is is uh, can reproduce and make more copies of itself. And as it does that, it is able to incorporate this bacteria eating or this radiation eating bacteria, and that's her goal. Trying to clean up a large radiation site, which is a direct result of the end of Book One of Infected. Book One infected, which is Book One of the Infected trilogy.
2: See, and speaking of the way that all these different stories tie together, we had a listener who wanted me to ask you, uh, what's your favorite uh, example of that from your work of, of of some clever way that things tie together.
0: I think I just talked about it okay. <laughs> it's, and it's Petra Prowat. Uh, you know, it's really fun to, cause I, I've had this plan in my head for 20 years now where I was going to create a, a realistic spread of novels that cover seven centuries so that I could write the modern day horror thrillers that I love so much as a reader and a viewer. I could then write 500 years from now that military SF and kind of a, Attack the Gene Roddenberry concept where all intelligent races will come together and we'll all speak the same language and everybody will just kind of get along. And, you know, we don't need money anymore and all of these, this utopian vision he has. And I love Star Trek, but I watch it as a fan. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it'll go that way. We can't even get along together on this planet and we look almost exactly alike and we have the same vocal apparatus. It's like, that's not going to happen. So the 500 years from now, different alien races fighting like cats and dogs, eating each other, complete disrespect for cultures. It's it's a really dirty, dark era. And then 200 years from there, 700 years from the future, where it is more of the Roddenberry-esque vision where races get along so well they can actually join each other on an athletic field. And you, if you're playing a team sport and you don't have all five races because of the way they operate in different positions, there's no way you can win. So you have to learn how to get along. So this giant spread of novels And knowing that somebody who's like five years old right now, 10 years from now, they're going to pick up uh, one of my books from the far future and read it and enjoy it. And then when they're in their 20s, maybe they'll go back and read the older books and there'll be that moment as a fan where you say, wait a minute, this is that character all the way into the future and this is that company. Holy cow, all of this stuff connects. And then watch them have to tear through all the novels and get that that joy of discovery in, in, in finding the different pieces and linking them together.
2: And uh, I understand that next up you'll be writing sequels to, to some of your existing books, but that actually first you're going to go back and rewrite some of the earlier books before you start on the sequels. Is that right?
0: Right. The first book I put out as a podcast was called earth core. And I've been promising the fans, the sequel to earth core, which we called Mount Fitzroy. I've been promising them that for going on uh, for nine years, close to going on 10 years. And I, I promise it with the best of intentions. Like every year I say, yes, I'm writing that this year. And then I, I other things pop up and, and I don't get it done, which is why I'm partnered with A. Kovacs in the first place because she knows how to organize and schedule things and I don't. So together we we make a pretty good fighting team. And I'm finally getting around to putting out that sequel, Mount Fitzroy. But because everything is in a timeline, as I mentioned, and because the timelines matter, the day the book comes out, In the real world is also the day, first day of the story in the fictional world. So today is January 21st, 2014. That is the real world date. The book Pandemic, which comes out today, also begins on January 21st, 2014. And the purpose of that is, again, so that person who's five now, who will be 15 in a while, you know, 10 years from now, I'll have 30 or 40 books. Somebody who really falls in love with what I do is going to be able to go on Wikipedia or go on Amazon and sort by publication date and be able to see the actual order of events because everything ties together. They can start book one and tear through the whole thing. Um, because of that, Earthcore hasn't really come out in hardcover, so I'm going to rewrite it. And the day we put that out in the ebook store, and if we put out a print book, will be the day in the story as well. So now i got to backfill in Ancestor, Nocturnal, Infected, Contagious, Pandemic, etc. So it needs a minor rewrite to bring it in line with the timeline. Got to do that first. Got to put Earthcore first before I can write the sequel, Mount Fitzroy. So that'll finally get that off my head. And then I finally finished my first trilogy, so there'll be no more sequels in the Infected trilogy. Then I have a sequel to write for Nocturnal. I have eventually a sequel to write for Ancestor. And then that military SF story is called The Crypt, and The Crypt has another book that needs to be written this year too. So uh, I need to start working on writing standalone novels mm-hmm. that don't have sequels because I, it's difficult to get to all of these sequels when I keep writing book ones. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, how about the film projects uh, and TV? Is there any, uh, any announcements about any of that stuff?
0: We're still working on it. We've got um, a deal done for the Nocturnal option. And Nocturnal is being produced by Lloyd Levin, who produced Hellboy, Hellboy 2, Die Hard 2, The Watchmen, Boogie Nights, very accomplished individual in Hollywood, and he's a big Creature Feature fan. And uh, if you like monsters, you like Lloyd's movies, and you like my books, so hopefully that'll work out okay. So that's going to start actually getting pitched to networks now in the next couple of weeks, and Hopefully, we'll find somebody who wants to fund the pilot and be able to make that and let the marketplace decide if that's a good show or not. The other one is um, in the Infected Trilogy, and the producers of Justified and Elementary uh, are Carl Beverly and Sarah Timberman, and they are a production team that is picking up Infected. And we're going to soon start writing a pilot script for that and see if we can pitch that out as well.
2: Mhm. Well, I mean, you mentioned that the second half of pandemic would be a two hundred fifty million dollar venture. Uh, do you <laughs> do you have a two hundred fifty million dollar budget? I wouldn't imagine, or do you expect them to make big changes to the story?
0: They're going to have to make big changes to the story. And what Carl Beverly likes about it is the arc of the main character Perry Dossie, the main character in Infected, and his his struggle and what he has to go through to overcome what's happening to him is uh it's horrific and violent and he's he has to do things to himself that the average person looks at and go yeah i would just roll over and die now as we get into the end of infected they're going to have to figure out what they want to do cuz that's got a a fairly big ticket finish contagious gets way more budgetary wise uh way there's a lot of military combat in it and figuring out what they want to do but i think I think his plan is twofold, or uh, two options. Number one, if you look at the Dexter series, which was incredibly well done and, and made everybody a lot of money and made a lot of fans happy, book one of Dexter matches season one of Dexter, and then after that, it goes off in a completely different direction. It has absolutely nothing to do with the book series. So Carl's got that in his back pocket. If he's If he has a hit with the infected TV show... And then it's, it as as the writers get into the writing room and you write all these episodes, things just naturally change in the story and in the narrative. And if they follow that and it's a different path, they'll have a unique show that could go any number of different directions. So that's possible. If they put out, in fact, that and it's a huge hit and they're like, yeah, we want to, you know, we're, we're, we do a slow build. And at the end of season one, we're going to bust out all these helicopters and this artillery and blow people's faces off. They can do that, largely with the the computer graphics and the CGI. And then they can move into book two and they can match book two exactly. I, I don't know. I have no idea. Like, They're the ones who can raise the money to make the show. And uh, if they place it with CBS, who they have a development deal with, then CBS gets to decide how much they want to spend. I'll just be happy to watch the process, to tell you the truth. If it makes it actually to TV, I'll be happy right off the bat and then get kind of the joy of discovery of watching where things go.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's always a big question, isn't it? And, uh, you know, (laughs) best of luck with that. It would be really exciting. Um, And I think we should probably start wrapping this up now. But uh, I really, I really enjoyed Pandemic and uh, really looking forward to uh, all these projects you're talking about. And I just really want to thank you, Scott, for taking so much time to talk with us today.
0: Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.
2: And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Scott Sigler for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing hackers. And we're joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got P.W. Singer, who you may remember from our feature interview all the way back in Episode 3. He's the director of the Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence at the Brookings Institution, and author of the nonfiction books Corporate Warriors, Children at War, and Wired for War. He also serves as an advisor for TV shows like The West Wing, and video games like Call of Duty. His latest book, Cybersecurity and Cyber War: What Everyone Needs to Know, has been called an essential read by Eric Schmidt, Executive Chairman of Google. And you can learn more about that at cybersecuritybook.com. So Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Mike Cole, who you may remember from our panel on Soldiers in Science Fiction back in Episode 75. As a security contractor, government civilian, and military officer, His career has run the gamut from counterterrorism to cyber warfare to federal law enforcement. He's done three tours in Iraq and currently works in cyber threat intelligence for a large metropolitan police force. His latest novel is Breach Zone, the third book in the Shadow Ops series, which has been called Black Hawk Down Meets the X-Men. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. And so when it comes to hackers, I think really my introduction to the concept of hackers was the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick, (laughs) which is about a teenager who hacks into a a military computer and almost causes all of our nuclear weapons to launch. And this idea of hackers making our nuclear weapons launch was also covered in two recent movies, Olympus Has Fallen and White House Down, which both presented this idea that if terrorists could take over the White House, they could hack into a computer there and launch all our nuclear weapons. So the first thing I want to talk about is just how real is this idea of hackers launching our nuclear weapons? Uh, Peter, what do you think about that?
1: (laughs) I'm going to jump right into it. See, I, I thought when you were going to say your first hackers, you were going to, you know, reference the the horribly uh, great um, Angelina Jolie movie Hackers, you know, before she was discovered, where she had her hair chopped off and all that. <laughs> um, look, so. Uh, the first is, you know, what do we mean when we say hackers versus the narrative around it, the way it's been portrayed, um, and then this this notion of, you know, how realistic is a is a cyber nine eleven or a cyber Pearl Harbor, you know, the the sort of stuff that we've seen in all these movies you referenced, or the you know the Die Hard four scenario. So, you know, hacker, the, the term itself, you know, it, it basically, you know, it originally meant a passionate technical expert who, you know, ignored the rules. Um, then it became, uh, something about, you know, it sort of evolved to focus on people who discovered and exploited vulnerabilities in a computer system or a network. And that's where you get this, this, you know, breakdown between the popular narrative of it being someone who has some kind of malicious intent in that versus, um, you know, the difference between a so-called, you know, white hat hacker who's, you know, trying to help someone find and therefore close these vulnerabilities versus a black hat hacker who's, you know, trying to, um, use them to some kind of bad ends. Um, but again, when we say hacker, everybody thinks it's the, it's the black hat pool, so to speak. And look, these terms are inadequate in a lot of ways, but I'm just trying to distinguish between them, um, in some way. And, and then you get to your, you know, the question of how realistic it, is it? Um, there's very real, uh, cyber vulnerabilities out there there's a wide array of threats I mean look you know as you mentioned I wrote a book on it but there's also um, frankly uh, a large amount of hype that's equally out there you know so the the way I, I see this is as an example, there have been over a half million references in media and major government speeches to cyber 9/11 or cyber Pearl Harbor, which remains a fictional scenario. Versus, I would argue the the massive intellectual property theft campaign that's going on, emanating from China, is real. And of much greater consequence right now. Or another way would be the, you know, the power grid goes down scenario. Um, squirrels have taken down the power grid more times than the zero times that hackers have. That doesn't mean it's not a a potential threat. But again, we just have to, you know, if we're going to change this from being this super fictionalized fear mongering scenario to, you know, what can we really do about it? We have to be realistic and, and that's a better way of applying our resources.
2: So, so really, we need a war on squirrels, is what you're saying? <laughs>
1: well, they they are, you know, uh, you know. I guess it would you in in that case, um, you you know, you need to enlist Boris and Natasha. Uh, <laughs> that's your approach.
3: Right. Right. I just want to give a a vocabulary word to the listeners of what you're describing. There's a term that we use in the field called SCADA. It stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition, but it basically is talking about the Internet of Things. It's using IP-connected devices to run dams and sewer plants and traffic lights and even all the way out to nuclear weapons. And as you know, anything that's IP-connected that can be reached from the Internet, sooner or later can be hacked. Um, and there, there are examples of this actually happening in real life. The one that pops to mind was in Australia with a, a sewage system that was um, deliberately sent haywire. Um, but there are, um, I think it was through a buffer overflow vulnerability in ActiveX or something like that. But um, I'm sure Dr. Singer probably has other examples.
2: Um, Peter, I mean, last time we had you on the show, it was about your book Wired for War, which is about military robots, uh, such as uh, aerial drones. And all those things, it seems to me, are operated by remote control, so must be at some level vulnerable to hacking. Is that a a major concern?
1: Most definitely. And it's interesting, uh, and it it connects to what was brought up about this idea of the Internet of Things. Um, The danger there is co-option. Uh, a battle of persuasion is what I call it, where you are literally with the proper access taking over control of the system or changing information in the system to cause um, a, a physical effect in the world. So uh, we've seen GPS hacking of drones as an illustration. There was a test done by a University of Texas team that showed that this could be pulled off where basically the the drone was told that it was somewhere other in the world than where it really was. They they changed the GPS codes for it. And so you can see now you get into, you know, physical consequences and Stuxnet is is a great illustration of a lot of things in this space. So Stuxnet was this um, in many ways cool, beautiful, amazing new piece of malware uh that was designed to sabotage Iranian nuclear research by going through um, the industrial control systems, the SCADA. Again, you know, that's this used for everything from, you know, centrifuges to traffic lights to um, uh, ice cream cone manufacturers. It's, you know, roughly used in all of them. And so it went after that. And what it did was it caused their centrifuges, or really the work within it, to... Um, It caused things to spin at alternative speeds, to get the pressure off, to spin out of control. So it caused a physical change in the world. And so in many ways, what you're talking about here is the first true cyber weapon. That is, it's like every other weapon in history that, you know, it caused some kind of physical damage, a stone, a drone, and now something digital doing that. But unlike every other weapon, it wasn't a thing. It was a bunch of zeros and ones. It was software. And and that meant, you know, it could operate in ways that we've never seen before. So it's really cool and fascinating. The caveat to this is Stuxnet amazing. It also wasn't something that a couple of, you know, teenagers sipping Red Bull in their parents' basement, which is how a, a Pentagon official describes cyber threats, That's not what they could pull off. And you know, this was something that was a Manhattan Project style creation of a new weapon. Um, so there, there, there are real threats here, including from teenagers, but the more sophisticated side takes really high-end expertise, um, not just cyber expertise, but Stuxnet you know, involved everything from nuclear physicists to engineers to intelligence analysts all working together. So it's a great illustration of the emerging dangers in this field, but also how um, some of the high-end stuff still remains uh, in the hands of the big boys.
2: Mm-hmm well and, and you mentioned a military officer not having a sufficient appreciation of the the scale of of the threat and in your book you talk about an air Force base commander who insisted that he have a he'd be given a one digit password because he just didn't have time to type multiple digits um is is that is that still do you think uh, that people just don't have a an appreciation for the the gravity
1: of the threat so in the book we we use that as a good that that was a, it, it described the situation um several years back it's Definitely no longer the case within the U.S. military, which is um, very much aware of the threats here. And there's a whole series of um, procedures that wouldn't allow that kind of attitude to happen anymore. That's but in the book we use that as um, you know showing how the military some leaders once had that attitude. It's no longer there. The problem really is when you move over to the civilian side. And so um, the examples would be everything from the the last head of Homeland Security, the civilian agency ostensibly in charge of cybersecurity. uh, She proudly told us how she didn't use email and in fact hadn't used um, social media for over a decade. Not because she didn't think it was secure, but didn't think it was useful or um, the Supreme court uh, you know, the greatest court in the land that will decide issues in the upcoming year that range from, you know, net neutrality to the NSA and as a justice put it to us, quote, they they hadn't quote yet gotten around to email. <laughs> <laughs> um, to um, look, the most popular password on the civilian side uh, is um, one two three four five. Um, the second most popular password is password. So the military's gotten better at it because there's a there's an awareness of threats. We need the civilian side to catch up to it because of how dependent all of us collectively are on the internet.
2: Well, well, Mike, do you agree with that, I mean, based on your military
3: experience? Yeah, I just want to take a counterpoint to that, Dr. Singer. I mean, I think he's right that the military has come a very long way, um, and uh, the idea of a one-digit password would never fly. But I still think there's a systemic problem in the military and in intelligence and in law enforcement. And the problem is, it has to do with how funding drives billets. Mm. So when counterterrorism was the big sexy, when I first got involved in, um, in crisis operations, uh, there was... A ton of money thrown at counterterrorism, and therefore, if you were in a counterterrorism position, you were more likely to get promoted because you would have larger staffs, you would have better funds to run operations. So counterterrorism billets, senior counterterrorism billets were sort of given out to the people. you got to remember that the large government organizations function on seniority, right? So you had a large number of people. I'll never forget when the head of counterterrorism for the FBI told Congress that nobody needed to know anything about Islam, nobody needed to speak Arabic because a bombing was a bombing and a murder was a murder. And that kind of attitude, you know, well, I, you know, I've been, a, I've been uh, an infantry officer training against, you know, the Cold War and UCOM all my life. Well, that's fine. I'll just go over to PACOM because I have 20 years experience as an infantry officer. And we all know now that that's, you know, that's not a good position. Well, I see the same thing now in cyber. And this is the thing is that cyber is about computers. That is what it is about. Um, There are certainly elements of intelligence in it. There are elements of law enforcement in it. There are elements of warfare in it. Um, You have to know persons and players. Um, There are all kinds of pieces, but at its root, this is a discipline that is about technology. the function of cyber warfare and the function of cyber intelligence, the, the lion's share of it should be technological skills and abilities. And I really think that the, the, in the military, we're still having infantry and artillery people running cyber commands. We, we, this, this has to be technology first.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. So another question I've got for you guys is uh, in the movie Mission Impossible, <laughs> we get this idea that, you know, the, the, the CIA has their uh, black vault computer at Langley. And in order to bust into it, you have to dangle from the ceiling and, you know, you can't sweat, drop sweat on the floor or anything like that. Is there anything in reality that you know of even remotely like this? Do you even have to bust in anywhere to do any sort of hacking or is it all done sitting at the safety of your computer?
3: I mean, physical access to servers is certainly always helpful. Um, You're going to have an easier time if you can plug directly into a a router or switch with a serial cable on a laptop. Um, So there's certainly value added in that. It also um, reduces the network reconnaissance that you need to do. I mean, one of the the first things you have to do when you're attempting to attack a network is figure out how that network is laid out and what devices are in the network and what software it's running, because that will dictate what kind of vulnerabilities you're going to exploit. Um, I can't speak specifically to how the CIA locks down their data center, but you have to remember that one of the big pushes right now um, in business and in government In fact, it's a it's a DOD mandate and a public one is to go to the cloud. You're hearing people talk about the cloud all the time. Um and really all the cloud is, is data centers, uh lots and lots of data centers that are uh that are distributed and that are redundant and that um and that are hosting your data and your applications. Um and I've seen some pretty secure ones. I don't know if I've seen ones that have, you know, laser beams shooting across the corner when you trip an alarm, but I've seen some that are locked down uh easily as well as uh as some prisons. So uh I'd say fifty percent true.
1: But one of the interesting things about it is it's built on um an assumption that uh holds out there that unfortunately doesn't work. And, you know, what, in mission impossible, essentially what they were you know, trying to create was a, an air gap. Um, you know, this super secure place was secure because it, it was not connected to anything else in the world. Um, and that's, you know, that's how we would protect it, which is the same way uh, we see people thinking about, you know, I've got an air gap, you know, protecting my um, critical infrastructure system, or, you know, the Iranians thought their nuclear research was um, going to be protected because it had an air gap. It wasn't connected to anything else. The problem is that, you know, whether it's in Mission Impossible or, frankly, in, in reality, you know, as Stuxnet would illustrate or a series of studies in infrastructure companies, is that air gaps consistently don't work. At some point, the data has to get in or go out at some point, there has to be upgrades, fixes, there's humans involved. There's, I can't think of a single case in which an air gap Actually worked, and there's I haven't seen a study that's shown that, and so you know that's that's the problem. You know, it may make for a really cool scene, and it may make you feel a lot uh, more secure to you know, oh my company, you know my power company, we're not connected to the internet, so we, we don't have any cyber concerns. Well, the reality is, it just doesn't work.
3: Doctor Singer is exactly right. There's there's malware that's written specifically to use thumb drives um, to to propagate. And uh, recently, there's a debate going on in the community that right now whether or not this is real. But if you guys Google bad bios, B-I-O-S, for your readers, this was uh, malware that's believed to transmit even from computers that are uh, not connected to the, the network via sound signals. Now, I will say that that's under debate right now, whether or not it's, it's real, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was.
1: But the, but the main, you know, it's often not these super, you know, sexy ways. It's just, frankly, at some point, Someone is going to bring data in or out. Otherwise, it's, it's your, your physically separated system is useless. You know, great. You've got the CIA vault, but if no one ever goes in and out and it's not connected, what's the point? And oh, and by the way, if it's never upgraded, you know, imagine this. You know, if we're staying within movie land, imagine this incredible, awesome vault running on software from 1995, it would be useless today. So at some point, someone's going to do a software upgrade. I mean, th- that's the, the problem is, um, you know, it's just, frankly, the human side, let alone all the really razzle-dazzle, cutting-edge stuff that may be um, happening out there in the in, you know what they call the black world and the classified world.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean some other things from your book that you mentioned are were people just leaving infected flash drives in parking lots and then people would plug them into the computer to find out who they belonged to. Yeah, the
1: the most um important uh outside penetration of of secure U.S. military networks by a foreign intelligence agency. So, you know, we're not talking about an insider one like, you know, Manning or Snowden, but by an outside foreign agency um, happened when they did what's known as a a candy drop, um, which is, you know, essentially dropped memory sticks in parking lots. And a soldier found one and thought it was interesting and um, took it inside and plugged it into his computer, whereupon it downloaded malware uh you know my joke on that is that he wasn't just not following cyber hygiene he wasn't following basic hygiene you know five second rule um you know cyber seems incredibly complicated and some parts obviously are but there are very basic steps to defend ourselves that would go an incredibly long way and cyber hygiene is one of those and in many ways they, they follow the sorts of lessons that we you know learn in preschool. And so don't take candy from strangers or five second rule. Um, you know, clicking on links that where you don't know the sender you know, the, the, my favorite story on that from last year was, um, Uh, top diplomats at the G20 conference, the most important international conference of the year, received an email that um, gave them a a very special offer. Uh, It said if they click this link, they would be able to see nude photos of the French first lady. And of course, several of them clicked the link and didn't get the nude photos, but did download spyware into their computers. I mean, these are the kind of things that go on again and again.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dave, the vast, and I, I deal with this all day long, if I had to say the the biggest way that systems are compromised, at least in the cases I deal with, it's phishing emails. It's something as simple as that, and some of them are ridiculous phishing emails. And what he's describing, uh, clicking on the picture of the of the new photos of the French first lady, that that's a that's a prime example of a phishing email.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess there's the there's, there's the phishing thing that we're all familiar with, where yeah, they're trying to get your you to enter your credit card info or something like that. But there's also, um, you know, one of my favorite cyberpunk short stories is this story by Orson Scott Card called Dog Walker. And the premise is that they hired this genius kid to try to guess the password of this um, uh, uh, government agent just by learning all he can about him. And uh, I was kind of surprised to learn, actually, that this is actually sort of a real thing. Um, Peter, you mentioned in your book, uh, uh, what is it, uh, APTs?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, you can think about this in in a couple of ways. So one is, um, there's many things that we think are, uh, super secure and just frankly are not. And, and, and the book, one of the chapters opens with the, there's a professor who, um, Essentially, if you tell them what state you're from and what year you were born uh, in a very, um, in a quick, simple uh, series of of steps, he can guess your social security number. And, um, you know, it's something that we think is uh, just known to us and yet widely known to, uh, you know, you you talked about passwords. I mean, obviously, we, we. often don't use very good passwords. Again, that story of 12345 being the most popular. But even if you have the best, most sophisticated password in the world, it's not enough. There are programs designed to to crack them. And it should not be your your only uh, layer of security. Uh, Then you get to what you were talking about, which is, you know, the difference between wide-scale phishing um, and uh, advanced persistent threat campaign, which is, you know, a group that's just like it sounds, it's it's targeting you specifically. So it's the difference between, uh, you know, everybody getting the the Nigerian print scam email versus a group that is focused on um, getting inside, wired, and trying to Target you as the entry point, and they often have a specific kind of information or data that they're after. the The way I talk about it is that um, APTs are like the Ocean's Eleven of um, cyber threats. You know, it's it's a group effort that's patient, involves a multiple set of skills. They know what they're after, and um, you know. What we need to understand is there's a difference between that and regular kinds of crime. Um, and that means on one hand, we're not all going to be targeted by APTs. We're, we all like to think that we're important, but many of us are not that important. But if you are targeted by an APT, um, it's a whole new level of challenge for you. And so companies uh, and organizations that have that that kind of valuable information uh, need to approach it in a fundamentally different way.
3: And then also, if if your listeners want to read more about APTs in very sort of plain language, um, there's Mandiant, uh, the, is a cybersecurity firm that did a very, very famous, um, report on, and if you, if your readers just Google Mandiant, M-A-N-D-I-A-N-T and APT-1, they'll read all about Mandiant's conclusion, pretty, pretty damning conclusion that a Chinese People's Liberation Army unit was uh behind certain attacks and, and how those attacks were initiated and how they worked. And it's in very easy to understand language.
1: Mm-hmm. That pains me. He recommended that report, and not my book. <laughs> but it's, it's a good, you know, and, and it's a good example of also the diversity of APT. So in that situation, um, it was a it was a Chinese government linked group, and uh, you know, there's lots of interesting backstories of you know how they were organized and their patients, and then how in turn Mandiant was able to figure out, you know, essentially Mandiant carried out its own effort against them and figuring out who it was, um, you know, and they even got down to you mentioned passwords. They even um, figured out that one of the key players and it was a Harry Potter fan by, uh, some of the things that we, he was using. But we also, again, you know, just like in, in any other type of crime, sometimes the, the targets might be of economic value and linked to governments, um, in other situations, uh, it might be of political. Um, so, you know, one of the uh, other efforts, for example, went. You know, we're we're entering Olympic season. Um, went after the uh, the International Doping Agency, uh, and it was trying to figure out essentially test results before the Olympics. Uh, to in the pathways in, they deeply study their target. So uh, an illustration was um, one figured out that the the way in to a Minnesota-based company was they sent an email that um, had, you know, click here for the company's new snow day policy and you now everyone from the CEO on down wanted to find out about you know the new snow day policy because in Minnesota that's very important so the the point that i'm making here is there's a diversity of of these these um, groups that go out there but also if you're thinking about on the defender side it means that you can't just merely focus on the exterior lines of defense you have to think about this a lot like the human body um, how it has layers of defense and it has internal monitoring and it triages it doesn't just you know say okay um, I've got my skin and that's it it assumes that there's it's in a dangerous world and it even assumes that the bad guy might get in but it's still ready to, to continue on its operation
2: Mm-hmm. Well, And in the book, you talk about, I mean, basically countries that are putting together whole units of hackers, you know, thousands of hackers, and, and also they have these sort of proxy uh, gangs of hackers that they can direct, but that they can also disavow their activities
3: well, youth youth groups uh is a big thing. you got to remember that um and the Boy Scouts in the United States are really not comparable to the sort of youth groups that support Vladimir putin. um the besiege in Iran is a really good example of this, and the um the uh, passive defense organization in iran the pdo is you know flat out come out and said that they uh harness the uh, abilities of of that organization um the thing that's interesting to see there is 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 that it's generational is that these, these things sort of come out of youth groups which which makes a lot of sense because uh, and this dovetails back into my old argument about the changes that we're seeing in the military is that it's often generational you have a a senior uh, echelon of officers now uh, that recognize the need um, even if the, they themselves have not grown up with it and they're reaching out to a younger generation to do it. The other cool thing about youth groups, right, is they give plausible deniability, is that, um, hostile regimes can say, well, you know, we didn't tell them to do this. They were so, you know, energized with anti-American fervor and pro-whatever our regime is fervor that they went off and did it on their own and we're so sorry it happened. Um, and, you know, we're put in a tough position to say, look, the Mandian report is, I mean, that's great when you can conclusively tie a, uh, a an intrusion set to a military unit, you know, right down to where their base is located. The Mandy goes so far in that report to provide photographs of the base that they believe the attacks originated from. But the truth is, is that attribution is one of the biggest challenges that face uh, cyber defenders today, because uh, it's really difficult to make uh, adversaries change their behavior when you can't even uh, pin the attack on them in the first place.
1: The, the diversity of actors in this space reflects the diversity of the actors on, on the internet itself. So, you know, as you mentioned, there's um, a wide range of co- countries building up uh, cyber military units of some sort. Right now, the number is over a 100 have created some kind of cyber command or cyber command equivalent. Uh, now, obviously, out of that 100, uh, there's a subset that are Real players. It's a lot like saying, you know, there's there's, um, you know, Burundi has an air force, but you you wouldn't evaluate it in the same category as the U.S. Air Force or the Chinese Air Force. The same thing in cyber. There's a subset of around twenty that are they're true players that could carry out serious serious attacks, and then of that, there's a, a further subset of ones that could carry out an extended campaign. But again, more than you know, more than a hundred, but it's not just limited to those. You have, you know, again the um, the, the youth groups or other times are called the patriotic hacker communities. On the U S side, you've got the contractor community. Um, you also have the uh, cross between cyber criminal groups and and, and patriotic hacker groups. So, you know, Russia is a great illustration of this where in some situations it's utilized its um, youth groups, uh, such as in the, in what's often referred to the, the, campaign against Estonia and there, there's a great story where you know literally it was the um, assistant to one of their parliamentary members who was a core player in it and on, on the side um, but in other situations where the Russians have mobilized um, their their cyber criminal groups for use in state aims and this sounds new and different but Guess what? This has all happened before. Uh, during World War II, for example, the U.S. Um, struck some deals with the the mob, uh, where they collected intelligence for us, and they also watched the the harbors for us. I mean, these kind of deals have happened before.
3: I just want to add on to that. I, he's exactly right. The one thing that I do want to add on that that I think makes cyber a little bit different is that um, in kinetic operations, it's really tough for. One person to have strategic impact. There's only so much kinetic damage uh, one individual can do, uh, even with uh, the most powerful technology. I mean, one person—it's very, very hard to set off a nuclear device with just one person. Um, whereas, I, I think the threshold for strategic level damage uh, done in cyberspace is much higher—the the, the ability of a single individual to to really, really tip the scale. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, it seems like there are all these fascinating, really complex developments in terms of hacking going on. And I I wonder, is anything in pop culture uh, coming to grips with this or even trying to? I mean, it seems like in in movies that hackers, I guess, are always sort of like one person and they can type really fast and and do stuff. But (laughs) none of of the, um, you know, you don't really see teams of hackers working together or organized by states, all this kind of stuff we're talking about. Um I guess just how how does the way that hack, people perceive hackers compare to your guys' your personal experience uh, interviewing them knowing them
1: typically, the portrayal in um mass pop culture is you know it's usually teenagers and you know you you made the joke who type really fast um and probably speak really fast. And up to no good. And then the impact is always the the literal destruction of the world, the the collapse of the power grid or or whatever it is. It's always this, you know, this this massive scale thing. Whereas, um, you know, the reality, of course, is that, you know, all hackers are not uh, slightly nerdy looking, but really cute uh, in the end. You know, they they aren't all Angelina Jolie with a with a bad haircut Um, or, you know, uh And of course, the activities that are going on, just like we said before, they they, they aren't always up to no good. They aren't towards some bad end. And um, even when it is up to some bad end, the scale, you know, most often is, you know, um, credit card theft or, or whatever, or be, or be it, you know, the, the attacks we mentioned that Russia was doing on Estonia, which was, you know, the blocking of government websites for periods of time. It wasn't the, um, you know, the kind of stories that often Hollywood is looking for in terms of, you know, literally uh, when you, when you meet with Hollywood folks, the, the reaction to almost any script, this sort of unthinking reaction is raised the stakes is what they'll say. And it's basically when they don't know what else to say, well, why don't we raise the stakes, you know, make it, um, the national, the survival of the United States was, was at risk. Nope. Raise the stakes. The survival of the world is now at risk. Um, and again, cyber is incredibly important, but it's very difficult for a small group without the backing of, you know, other kind of resources to carry out that kind of huge, huge national survival level impact. Um, to me, It's, uh, outside of the main, you know, the, the big mega movies where you see the portrayal better done and that, you know, that's in the sci-fi novels or in some of the video games. And then again, I think it, it reflects, you know, the generational differences too, of who are the key players in those communities.
2: Mm, Well, I feel like I have seen an evolution in the way that hackers are portrayed. I mean, sort of in the eighties and nineties, I would say the prototypical hacker was, uh, the Alan Cumming Boris character from GoldenEye, where he's kind of this really arrogant, socially awkward, badly dressed guy.
1: But but you just identified the main character in about five different CBS dramas.
2: Uh, still, you think? I don't watch a lot of TV.
1: <laughs> like, you know, and all the NCIS and CSI, yeah. and, you know, the, it, it, there's always that kind of slightly nerdy, you know, um, and wearing slightly different clothing, and, you know, and they're the this the side member of the team. I mean, I just... I, unfortunately, you know, again, there's, there's some great examples, but there's a lot of bad examples out there. Um, my, my favorite one to to beat up on right now is the TV show intelligence where, you know, it's the the guy who has the, you know, you, you talked about the example of tom cruise and in um uh mission impossible and you know all the information is kept in one place well this guy's now got it all and he's got the chip in his head and you know set aside the the nsa questions there i'm just wondering you know what happens every time he does a metadata download how does he not go you know his, his brain literally catch on fire
3: we, we always used to joke when we work with nsa people you know how can you tell uh an extrovert at the nsa they 're looking at your shoes
2: <laughs>
3: but the uh, no he makes a, a, a really good point and, the, and and with intelligence, I watched the pilot and then I just started calling it stupidity <laughs> um, the uh, but the point is this is that sometimes the bad guy hackers are doing good um, they 're just doing it illegally so you know you have the Aaron Schwartz case and you have people that are hacking universities because they believe that access to uh, law that people have to comply with should be available to the public. I'm not going to posit either way that what whether they're right or not, um, but there's certainly an argument to be made there. One of the biggest challenges we face in law enforcement is hacktivism, and one of the things that these hacktivists like to do is expose police brutality. The Steubenville Rapist case is a very good example where Anonymous was involved. They often dox. Dox is a slang word for basically do open source research and reveal personal information about officers that they are believe, believe are engaging in police brutality in an effort to raise public awareness, raise public outcry, and get action taken by law enforcement. Now, oftentimes they're they are wrong, oftentimes they're doing this illegally, but they are sometimes right and uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue whether or not the ends justify the means, but this idea that this evil hacker is going to destroy the world, some of this, what we consider hacking is an important tool uh, for political change. And filtering those two things out is a, is a real challenge and something we're grappling with. The Schwartz case is a perfect example of that. The Weave case is another good example of that. Some would even argue that the Snowden case is an example of that, although that's I think, less of a hacking case and more of just a walking out the door with information case.
2: Well, yeah. And, and in uh, in your book, Peter, you mention um, uh, some uh, military official referencing Manning and Snowden and saying that the solution to this is to cut more people out of the loop and just, I guess, put things in the cloud and just minimize the number of people who have access to this information by automating it somehow. Do you, do you think that that's a, an effective uh, approach to that issue?
1: Well, before I get to that, I wanted to, to tie to the last um, answer because it, it, it's spot on and it raises a, another um, interesting uh, ripple effect of, of some of the way, you know, again, whether it's the MIT case or the Snowden case um, or how some, you know, hacktivist communities have been dealt with is that there is now a greater distance between the government... And um many private sector experts than I think there was a couple years ago and then this particularly this is this has hit a you know a sharp point with snowden where you know you can't see a, a bigger divergence than between you know in in d c you know i i i'm speaking with a, a Former cabinet official who was just apoplectic, you know, almost spitting at just how angry they were that anyone could think he was anything other than a traitor. Da, 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 da. And then a couple of days later, I'm out in Silicon Valley. And of course, there's just a diametrically different, um, opinion towards him. And the same, you know, could be fit in any, um, college computer science lab. And the, the concern there, and again, or whether it's the Aaron Schwartz case or whatever, is that the Many of the skill sets that the law enforcement agencies don't just need now, but the kind of folks that they would um, potentially be recruiting in the future, they may find it far more difficult. It's one of the many ripple effects of, of these cases, um, this distrust, this, you know, there's not, I wouldn't describe them as being, you know, loving communities and having trust before, but there's certainly a greater distance there than there was a couple of years ago. It's one of the many r- ripple effects of this. Um, to your other about, uh, you know, the response and, you know, is, is one of the responses just simply to automate or put things in the cloud. That was argued by um, a top general. It's one of the things they're going to try is to try and reduce the number of systems administrators that people who are in that kind of position. But the reality is, is that like everything else, there's no single solution, no silver bullet to it. Um, there's many things that, frankly, should have been in place that go beyond just the number of systems administrators that you have. I mean, to be frank, uh, whether it's Snowden's case or or Manning, whether you agree or disagree with them, it's very clear that the organizations that they were in were not following many basics of cybersecurity that. A cupcake store should have, let alone a you know a high-end military unit. Um, you know, it's things like you know sharing of passwords across, giving people access to um, too much information, um, not monitoring anomalies of um, you know movements of, of massive amounts of information. These are all the kind of things that the cupcake store should have, let alone uh, someone working with NSA or U.S. military data.
2: Mm-hmm. I guess uh the other, another thing I wanted to, really wanted to ask you about is you quote Corey Doctorow in your book as saying, quote, cyber warfare is a meaningless buzzword coined by rapacious defense contractors. Um and the the way I, I get the feeling you disagree with him from the way it's quoted, but could you just talk about that quote and like what, what you think it it means?
1: Well that chapter um I both disagree and agree. That chapter wrestles with this term cyber war, which uh has been used to describe so many different things that it's at risk of becoming meaningless uh so you know a good example would be a a major magazine had a cover story that had cyber war and then it had this digital pixelated mushroom cloud over a city destroying it and then when you read the article it's about things like credit card fraud (laughs) um and, you know, look, let's be blunt. The same thing has happened with the regular term war, where it's been used to describe everything from, you know, World War One to the, you know, war on poverty or the war on drugs to, you know, the war on Christmas or on sugar or whatever. Um, and so there's a problem when terms uh, get abused in that way uh, and that they um, it, it makes it more difficult to talk about. It. So, you know, there is a difference between how we popularly talk about cyber war versus military computer network operations, how the military would actually use it um, to, to conduct operations. Uh, the second thing, what what Corey was talking about, and this is where I... Where I so so I disagree in, in that there are very real military uses and cyber war threats out there, and they will continue to grow in the future. This is an incredibly important domain, not just for commerce and communication, but also for conflict itself. Where I would agree is that there is a growing industry of organizations, bureaucracies, corporations, and people who see this not as a bad thing, but as an opportunity to make lots of money from it. And that's why I was referencing, um, you know, there's a chapter that explores the, the burgeoning cyber industrial complex that's out there. It's one of the, um, fastest growing parts of uh, industry, particularly in the defense industry. Uh, it's where many of the mergers and acquisitions are. It's where the money is being spent. But there's a lot of people who benefit from this, and we have to be wary of when you've got that kind of combination.
3: You know, it, it chills me to disagree with Corey Doctro because he's, <laughs> he's a personal hero of mine and I think one of the most important voices out there right now for um, freedom and technology. So, uh, but I, he's just flat out wrong. The reality of it is, is that um, cyber warfare is a doctrinal term. Cyber warfare has a definition, it has hard edges, um, so it may be being misused by rapacious defense contractors. I certainly wouldn't say that uh, there, but the idea that, that that term has no meaning is just flat out wrong.
2: I'm just curious uh, if you guys could say, I mean, um, um, Peter, in your book you mentioned William Gibson. Uh, some of our listeners mentioned Neil Stevenson. Um, just uh, just generally, what do you guys think about science fiction, written science fiction that deals with uh, hackers and cyberpunks? Are there favorites of yours? Uh, were any of them particularly influential on your thought process, anything like that?
1: You just mentioned some of the greats, and, and it's fascinating how uh, not merely what they were writing, but when they were writing it. And it points to... Uh, the power and the possibility of science fiction um, and actually how consistently science fiction does a fairly decent job of, uh, predicting the future. And, um, you know, in in my last book, I explored this a little bit, you know, it's kind of a riddle of, you know, why do people, you know, why do so many science fiction writers, um, do a better job than say, government agencies? And that's not just true of, you know, the writers like Gibson, but you can go back to, you know, the, the, the Asimov, the Clarks, the whatever, um, the Jules Verne's, um, and there's a whole series of reasons, you know, one is that they, they often have a science background, but when they move into fiction, they're not limited by, you know, a budget or by what's happening in their lab in particular, so they can project forward. Uh, another part of it is that they have a... Um, great power in shaping the future and that we get our ideas of what the future should look like and therefore what we should invest in and what we should build from fiction. You can definitely see this, this effect in, um, uh, you know, from this to move outside of literature, but to to Star Trek's impact, you know, where you see both the direct inspiration of, you know, the, the guy uh, getting the idea for the, um, this The cell phone, from, I mean he talks about literally when he was in the lab taking a break, watching um someone when you know flip out a communicator in go, lab. that's a really cool idea to. Uh, I remember speaking with the Pentagon budget guy who said, you know, one of the ways that you help you know, frame it for senior leaders that don't understand a, a complex technology is you'll say, it's just like the, in and, and one situation, it's just like this, the, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And that gave them a way to both wrap their head around it, but also become convinced that uh, this thing was futuristic and worthwhile.
3: Um, I was just going to say that, and it's ironic for me to say this as a science fiction writer, but I've always found writing about, um, hacking and cyber warfare to be really frustrating because, uh, you know, I've, I've been making this point over and over that I really think the core of this is technology. And even with Neuromancer, which is such a great book or Snow Crash, um, no one goes into the tech, really goes into it and, um, makes it interesting. And some people would argue that the bits and bytes can't be interesting. I'm going to cry BS on that because, John McPhee, who famously wrote wrote the famous book um, Basin and Range, that's a book about the formation of rocks, and it's fascinating, Um, and he gets very, very technical. So there is a writer out there who can do it, and uh, I haven't found them yet, but I uh, I hold out hope.
2: All right, so it's six o'clock, and we promised to let uh, Peter go at six, so... um... I guess I'd uh, just like to like to really thank you. Uh, PW Singer. Everyone go check out his new book, Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know. Thanks for having me. All right, great. And uh I'll guess Bike and I can stay on for a little bit more.
3: Hey Dr. Singer, cool. thanks. It was really cool to meet
1: you. Oh, appreciate it. Thanks very much. Um great conversation. And and uh if if you got if you can send me the, the link when it posts and, and we can tweet it out here as well.
3: All right, great. Yep, yeah,
2: I will definitely do that.
3: All right. Cool. Take care. Yep. Thanks. Bye. 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 That was
2: cool. <laughs> yep. Um, but so, are you? Do you have some more time, Mike? You want to just chat for a couple more
3: minutes? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to
2: chat with you. Um. Yeah. I guess just one other thing I wanted to mention was, um, uh, in preparation for this panel, I, I watched this documentary last night called DefCon, the documentary, and it's a <laughs> free documentary you can watch online about the largest hacker convention. Yeah,
3: yeah, um, sure. It's famous.
2: Yeah, and so um, uh, I would definitely recommend people check that out. But are are you familiar with that con, Mike, or do you know anything oh, yeah.
3: about it? Oh yeah, I'm I'm well well familiar with DefCon. I mean, DefCon is the the famous one where the NSA used to go every year, and then when the Snowden case broke, uh, they were sort of disinvited. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that was covered in the in the documentary or not.
2: I think it. Ha- they no, they invited Keith Alexander. It was DefCon twenty, so maybe it was just before the Snowden thing broke.
3: Uh, and that's where he made his famous speech, where he promised that uh, that we weren't <laughs> that we weren't doing all the things that we later were determined to actually be doing.
2: Well, they didn't cover that in the documentary, but yeah, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. no, but DEFCON, yeah. If you work in the field, you know about DEFCON. Everybody knows about DEFCON, and Black Hat is the other big one.
2: It looks like a pretty crazy party from uh, from this documentary.
3: I would be, you know, it's funny, uh, I would be reticent uh, or careful about going within 100 miles of that place because it's a lot of really, really smart people um, who aren't real interested in authority uh, in one spot.
2: Well, yeah, they quote one guy as saying that he takes the battery out of his phone before he approaches DEF CON.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I would go back to Stone Age there out of an overabundance of (laughs) caution.
2: Um, all right, cool. So, I mean, we we should probably start wrapping this up, but uh, I mentioned that you have a new book out. It's just out today as we're recording this, Uh Breachstone. Uh,
3: yeah, yeah, Breach Zone finishes up my Shadow Ops series. It's book three in the series, although I, I certainly think it can stand alone. Uh, and uh, it, as a New Yorker, if you like, uh, it, it's the siege of Manhattan. So if you're a fan of the old style, uh, the, the best review I've seen of it yet uh, called it Harry Potter meets the Avengers. Uh, if you remember the, the latest Avengers movie, The Big Siege of New York. So uh, that was a really cool comparison. And uh, hopefully our readers will enjoy it.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's the number seven book in space, under Space Marine on Amazon.
3: <laughs> because it has so many Space Marines. Now I'm terrified that Game Designers Workshop or Games Workshop <laughs> come and sue me because <laughs> Amazon labeled it a, a Space Marine book. But uh, hey, man, whatever, uh, whatever gets people to read it.
2: <laughs> All right. So that was our panel. So big thanks to our guest geeks, P.W. Singer and Mike Cole. And of course, big thanks again to Scott Sigler for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Bitter Drugs in the U.S., Curious Q and P.H. Duffy in Canada, Becca 1912 in Australia, and YA Zombie Simois Moi in France. Bitter Drugs writes, I'm binge listening to you guys for 10 hours straight every day this week at my job. The day flies by. Keep it up, guys. So thanks, everyone, for the reviews. And also a very special thank you to George Turcott, crowdfunder number 67, for becoming the fifth person to be making monthly contributions to the show. To learn more, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And speaking of crowdfunding, you should all go check out the wildly successful Kickstarter, Women Destroy Science Fiction. In response to some of the sexism in science fiction this past year, Lightspeed Magazine will be releasing a special double issue written and edited entirely by women. The project met its $5,000 goal within just a few hours and has currently collected over $20,000 from over 1,000 backers. If the total hits 25000 the Lightspeed staff will also release a special issue of Nightmare Magazine called Women Destroy Horror, also featuring stories written by women and selected by legendary editor Ellen Datlow. To learn more, visit lightspeedmagazine.com kickstarter. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends